Genesis chapter 34, Genesis chapter 34. You can uh, follow along uh, with us on the Version app. And uh, while you're getting there, uh, last week we picked back up in our uh, study in the book of Genesis. And we started back up by talking about Jacob. And it was kind of the beginning of Jacob's, you know, his ministry, his life, uh, kind of this big event that kind of pushed him into, uh, you know, everything that will eventually take place. And we see that through some deception, uh, Jacob ends up with uh, Esau's birthright and his blessing. You know, this deceit that's kind of been passed down from his mother to him. And as we will see in our text this morning, uh, his offspring. And uh, of course, this makes Esau quite angry. If you as you would imagine, his birthright's gone, his blessing's gone, birthright's his fault, but still. Uh, and so he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for this time of mourning to be done, and then I'm going to kill him. I'm going to go after him, I'm going to kill him. And Rebecca hears this, and so she uh, tells Jacob, hey, uh, go to Laban until he calms down. And uh, to kind of cover this thing up, Rebecca goes to Isaac and says, hey, we shouldn't have him marry a Canaanite woman. Have him go to uh, Laban and, and find a wife uh, from my side of the family. And so Isaac tells Jacob to do that. And as Jacob's on his way, he stops for the night and he lays his head down on a stone and he has this crazy dream. He has this crazy dream. And this dream of, uh, we refer to it as Jacob's ladder. And he sees these angels ascending and descending. And it's this connection between heaven and earth is what it represents and at the top of this ladder is God and he tells him hey you know what you're the same promise that was made to Abraham made to Isaac is made to him your offspring is going to be numerous you're going to take this land and so Jacob wakes up and you know he makes this vow he sets up this pillar and he makes this vow God if you come through if you provide if you give me what I need if you get me back home safely if you take care of me then you will be my god and so from there we see this some crazy things happen in the life of jacob and we're not going to go through all of the life of jacob but i just want to cover a couple of quick points that get us to where we're at this morning we do see that jacob eventually finds a wife in fact he finds two wives due to assume again deception and uh, ends up working seven years for one wife, Leah, and then the second wife, Rachel, that he actually wanted to be married to. We see some tension between him and Laban, and one day we see Jacob wrestle with God. Now, I would like to tell you how this all began, but what Scripture says is, after he sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And that's how it happens. Imagine you're walking along, and just all of a sudden, you're wrestling with God. How uh, crazy that is, and he wrestles with God, and he survives this theophany, this uh, God in uh, human form, and he's, he gets blessed. And his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. He's going to be the father of a nation. And after this, we see him reconnect with his brother Esau. 
and he's expecting that uh, this is not going to be a good situation, yet it turns out not like we would think. Esau embraces him. And this leads us to the end of chapter 33, where it says he camped within the site of the city of Shechem. And Shechem, it was an important place of promise. Shechem was an important place of promise. It's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. It's the location where Abram stopped at the tree of Morah and received God's promise of the land. Shechem became a part of the promised land of Israel. Shechem is the same place where Joseph's remains will be buried in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32. And during the time of the divided kingdom of Israel, Shechem was the capital of the northern kingdom for a while. Shechem was also a place of commitment. In the area of Shechem, the Israelites were reminded of God's covenantal relationship to them, which he had first made with Abraham. Shechem was a place of worship. When the Lord appeared to him at Shechem, Abram built an altar to God at that site. But then we come to Genesis 34. And we find Shechem in a different light. Shechem in Genesis chapter 34 is a place of tragedy. Shechem in Genesis 34 is a place of deception. Shechem in Genesis chapter 34 is a place of violence. And it's a story that is tragic, and it's hard to read, and it's one of these stories, I'll just be honest, if, if you were to be honest too, and we were talking about Genesis chapter 34, you would probably say, oh, that's one of those chapters that I read, and then I kind of move out of it as quick as possible. It, it's a tragedy. I don't want to stay in Genesis 34, and so we kind of read Genesis 34. We, we look at it and say, oh, that's horrible, and we move on to the next section that, okay, that's better. But in Shechem, in Genesis chapter 34, there's an absence. There's an absence. There's something, someone missing in this text. And when we see this missing, what's missing, we see that things fall apart. And so what happens in Genesis 34? What makes Genesis 34 such a tragedy? So we'll get into it starting in verse 1. And it says this, Now Dinah the daughter of Leah, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. Man, this is the intro to this text, and this is the setup, and it is a difficult setup to this story. We see that Dinah goes out to visit the women of the land. Dinah was the only daughter of Jacob that's mentioned in Scripture. This was the daughter that was given to him by Leah, and it was believed that she was about 15 years old when we find her in this text. We see her mentioned in Genesis 30, 21 as well, and we see here she's out visiting the women of the land, not accompanied by a chaperone. This would be kind of a shocking thing. Most of the time, if you were going to go into a place that wasn't yours, you would be accompanied with, or by somebody. She's not. Historian Josephus believed that she was there for a festival. Some believe that she was... Uh, had, or she had a relationship with the women in the area. Some believe that she was just rebelling against her parents. Maybe her parents said, hey, you are to not 
be with the Canaanites. You're not to be around them. And she's saying, I'm bored being here by myself. I'm going to go and I'm going to do what I want. What we do know for sure is this. It wasn't a safe position for her to be in, being with these other Canaanites. She should have stayed away from the Canaanites. And then we see that Shechem, who shares his name with the city, probably named after the founder of that city, sees her. And what happens next is shocking. He takes Dinah and he rapes her. And this is a horrible tragedy, a horrible situation. Genesis chapter 34, verse 2, in the ESV, it reads like this. It says, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. That's a strong word used there. He humiliated her. He rapes her. He humiliates her. But then we see something that we probably would not expect to happen in this text. It says that his heart was drawn to her. His heart was drawn to her. He loved her. He loved her. He spoke tenderly to her. This is shocking. We wouldn't expect to see this after what has taken place. He wants his father to go to Jacob and say, take her to be my wife. After this tragic event, Scripture doesn't tell us if this desire for her is what motivates him to do what he does or if this comes after what has taken place, and I don't think it matters because the act is not excused. In this time and all through the scripture, rape was seen as a horrible thing. Matter of fact, look at what the law of Moses says about this in Deuteronomy 22, 25 through 29. It says, but if out in the country a man happens to meet a young woman pledged to be married and rapes her, only the man who has done this shall die knew nothing to the woman. She has committed no sin deserving death. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders a neighbor. For the man found the young woman out in the country and thought the, or throw the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to rescue her. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not, who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, they are discovered, or, and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver he must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. And so this is our backdrop. This is where we begin our story this morning. And so uh, Dinah's out. Shechem sees her, takes her, rapes her, falls in love with her, and desires to have her as his wife. And so that leads us into verse 5. It says this, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as a or as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. 
So there's a lot of things that happen here. First, we see that Jacob hears about what has happened to his daughter, that she's been defiled. His sons are out in the field with his livestock, so he doesn't do anything about it. And there have been so many questions here about the reaction of Jacob. The scripture doesn't show us a Jacob who flies off the the rails. He doesn't become unhinged at what has happened. We don't see a man who shows any anger over what has happened to his daughter. There's a lot of theories as to why Jacob seems silent. He doesn't say anything until the end of this text, and a lot of people wonder, why is this? Some believe that Jacob's passiveness shows that he doesn't really care for Dinah because she's the daughter of Leah, who was not the woman that he loved. You know, it is possible he did seem to show favoritism towards Rachel and her offspring over Leah's. Look what happens when Jacob met Esau. In Genesis 33, 1 through 3, it says, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. So Jacob at least does put himself up in the front, but people ask, what does this have to do with favoritism? Well, if Esau came and things got violent, the people at the back of the line would have an easier chance of escape. And so who does he put at the back? Rachel and Joseph. It kind of shows that favoritism there. Although others believe that it could be Jacob was acting or acting on his own, it wouldn't really have accomplished anything, so he would wait for his family. Maybe he's thinking up a plan on how to deal with this. We don't really know what the thought process of Jacob here is in his mind. Scripture does show, kind of seems like he doesn't plan to do anything. He doesn't really plan to do anything because of fear, which we will see more here in just a bit. But we see Hamor arrives to talk with Jacob, and around the same time that Hamor is arriving, it becomes known to Jacob's sons about what has taken place, and they're furious about this. Their sister has been raped and humiliated, and they're furious about this. These sons are Simeon and Levi. They were sons of Leah, so they would have been, uh, this wouldn't have been a half-sister, this would have been their actual full-blood sister and so they're upset with what has happened it says that this is an outrageous thing that has been done in israel some believe that this is talking about the nation of israel a better translation i think is against israel this has taken place against israel and it's a horrible thing and next thing we see is hamor tells them that my son loves dinah she really he really does you should give her to him but these verses really paint a big picture on what is in Hamor's mind he he starts by saying we should intermarry not only should you give Dinah to him you know we'll give you our daughters and we should intermarry think about all the the benefits of this this isn't just a mere proposal this is turning into a diplomatic plea Let's make an alliance. It would be mutually beneficial. You can come and live in the land, trade in the land, acquire property in the land. We will have your women, you will have our women. It'll all be great. It's just a, a giant benefit for all of us. I think Hamor knows that this is a very dangerous situation that he's in. 
I think he knows that this is a dangerous situation. He's attempting to smooth things over while being also, as we'll see in a bit, a bit deceptive himself. And apparently Shechem's here too. He made the journey with him and he says, whatever you want, I will give. Just give her to me. Whatever you want, whatever your asking price is, just tell me. It doesn't matter how small or big or great it is. Just tell me and it is yours. At this time, it was customary for a groom to pay a bride price to the bride's family, as well as to give a gift either to the bride herself or to the family on behalf of the bride. And he's saying, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll give you whatever you want, no matter how big or small. Just tell me, and it is yours. Can you imagine what Dinah's brothers are thinking here? How angry this probably made them? giving everything that has just happened, everything that has just taken place, this feels like it's a bribe to just avoid penalty for what he's done, paying off the family just to get away with this mistake that he's made. And so, Hamar has laid out this proposal, and so how will they respond? It says in verse 13, it says, "'Because their sister Dinah had been defiled,' Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Oh, and so here we see the plan that Jacob is, or Jacob's sons are building. It starts, it starts to take shape here. Remember, the name Jacob is the Hebrew idiom for the word he deceives. And apparently this has been passed down, a trait that's been passed down. And they say, there's no possible way that we would ever allow you to marry our sister because you haven't been circumcised. We can't do this. We can't give our women to you because you've never been circumcised. Remember, circumcision was required of all Abraham's descendants as a sign of the covenant that God had made with them. And if you haven't been circumcised, we can't possibly agree to this. But here's the thing. They're, they're going, not only are they deceiving, they're taking this covenant, this very important thing, a covenant with God. It wasn't something to be taken lightly. It wasn't something that was just to be used for selfish reasons. It was an important thing, this covenant with God. Circumcision was a sign of this covenant. And so they're taking something so holy, something so important, and twisting it. This isn't a true covenant. It's a moment of deceit. And before we get too shocked and say, how dare they use religion and, or use something holy in, in a terrible way, we shouldn't really be shocked because we see it happen all the time in our world today anyway. Do we not? So many false teachers twist the word to make it fit their agenda or use it for the sake of making money, leading people astray. Many twist the word to make it say what they want it to say so that they don't feel guilty about the things that they do. Some use scripture as a weapon to point out other people's flaws and mistakes while never being accountable for our own. We kind of do the same thing. 
And so this is their plan. You need to be circumcised. If you want to be with our women, we will only do so under the condition that you go and you get circumcised. And so how will they respond? You're probably thinking they're probably not going to do this. Well, listen to what it says in verse 18. It says, their proposal seemed good to Hamar and his son Shechem. The young man who was the most honored of all his father's family lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of the city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised, as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms, and they will settle among us. And so we see here that this proposal seemed good to Hamar and Shechem. In this case, it's prob they're probably glad that it seems like there's a good chance they're going to get away with what has taken place, and they can benefit from an alliance with Jacob and his family. Matter of fact, look at the eagerness on the part of Shechem. I'll do it. I'm not even going to ask any questions. I'm not even going to debate this in my mind. I will do whatever it takes to get her as my wife, even if that means being circumcised. I'll do it. And so they go before the city of Shechem, and they say, hey, guess what? They're friendly towards us. News has probably already spread about what has happened. They're probably thinking, let's strike while the iron is hot. They're friendly towards us. Let's intermarry. Let them be a part of us. We'll be a part of them. And here's where we see the true motive of Hamor. They stand, to gain, or they stand to gain the riches of Jacob and his family. Israel was not poor. Jacob was not poor. And the city of Shechem would have a lot to gain from this. And so far in this, this text in Genesis chapter 34, if one thing stands out to me, it's just deception. Deception, deception, deception. It makes me think of Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? hearts turned in wrong directions, hearts being deceitful. But the city was convinced. Every man in the city was convinced, and all the men go out of the, or out of the city, and they're circumcised. I keep thinking in my mind as I read this, there had to at least been one person who's like, you want us to do what? Really? That's what you're... I don't know about this, man. But apparently, the benefits outweighed everything else in their mind and so they all went out of the city and were circumcised and that leads us to what happens next in verse 25 it says three days later while all of them were still in pain two of jacob's sons simeon and levi dinah's brothers took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city killing every mill they put hamor and his son shechem to the sword and took dinah from shechem's house and left the sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. This is where we see the plan come to fruition, the plan that the sons of Jacob had made. Circumcision would have been incredibly painful, especially as an adult male would have been incredibly 
painful, it would have required time to heal. You know, they knew that there's no way they were going to be able to attack the city head on. And so what do they do? They make them do this. They make them go through this pain. It requires time to heal. It's a surgery. It would require time to heal. And while they knew that the people were healing, what do they do? They go and they kill every single male in the city. They kill Hamor. They kill Shechem. They kill each and every male that is in this city it tells us that they rescue Dinah from Shechem's house. It likely that she was still there at Shechem's house after what had taken place. They take everything. They take everything from the city. They take all the livestock. They take all the wealth. They take all the women. They take all the children. There was no intention of just going after two people. They were out for blood. And you have to think, Jacob probably hears about this, and Jacob is probably livid about their mistake here. He's probably livid about what has taken place, this horrible thing that has happened. Yes and no. This is what it says in verses 30 and 31. It says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and parasites, the people living in this land. We are few in numbers, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should we have treated, or should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? And these final two verses, they don't really seem to paint Jacob in a very good light. He goes on and he rebukes them, absolutely, but as in his rebuke, it's not really a concern about what they've done in, as far as the mistake they've made. No, he's worried about what their mistake could do to him, to his name. He's afraid if they decided to rally together the Canaanites to Perizzites, they could form an alliance that they could go after Jacob and destroy him and his family. He's afraid of what may happen. It appears that Jacob didn't know the plan Seems likely to keep the peace, he was just going to give his daughter over, the way it kind of seems. And the sons reply kind of just as you would think they would. They feel like their sister was being treated horribly, that she was being treated like a prostitute. And we see later that the nation of Israel, and we'll talk about this more in just a minute, was instructed to avoid defilement with the Canaanites. We've already seen it alluded to earlier in Genesis, and it'll be in more full view later on in Scripture. And really, the attack ends up having the opposite effect of what Jacob thought later on. And so this is a very messy story. This is a very messy story. This is a hard story. I've read through the story over and over and over and over and over again this week. And every time I read it, it's like, I don't want to read it anymore. It's a horrible, horrible situation. But there's lessons to be learned from it. And I want you to notice something, and maybe you've already noticed it. Maybe you've, you've, caught, you know, you've caught sight of what's missing in this text. Notice whose name is not called on once in this text. Not once do you see the name of God mentioned in Genesis chapter 34. Nowhere to be found after all this tragic stuff has taken place. Not once does Jacob say, God, what do I do? Not once does Jacob's son say, God, what do we do? God is nowhere to be found in this text, but God is watching what has taken place in this text. 
And so what are the lessons to learn? Well, I think all the lessons to learn from this revolve around one kind of major theme. What happens when we remove God out of the picture? What happens when we take God out of the picture in this world, in our lives around us? What takes place when we take God out? So here's what I think we can learn from this. One, when we remove God, sin saturates our society. When we remove God from our society, sin saturates everything. It saturates our society, our culture, everything around us. When we remove God, sin enters in. Let's look at this text, for example. How does sin saturate culture? Shechem used to be an important place. Now it's filled with pagan people. Let's look at our text. What happens at the beginning? Dinah is raped by Shechem. Let's talk about how throughout history, in the scripture, out of the scripture, sexual immorality has become prevalent in this world. Look at our culture now, sexual immorality, and how it impacts our culture now. Here's some statistics. This come from, or it comes from Covenant Eyes. It's a uh, site that helps with uh, you know, those struggling with porn addiction and uh, just information and resources. This was some surveys they did, and these are some statistics that they found. 28,258 users are watching pornography every second. Every second. $3,075.64 is spent on porn every single second. One in five mobile searches right now are for pornography. And 57% of teens search out porn at least monthly. And that's not even to talk about the rise in sex trafficking that we see in our world today. And we live in a culture that has made sexual immorality so normalized to the point that we don't even blink when we see it. We've become so desensitized to it. And that's not all. Look at everything else. We, we live in a world that sin has made deception a big thing. We live in a world that has made everything acceptable. Things that Scripture says are not to be acceptable have become normalized. We live in a time where you can get on social media, you can get on anything, and you see gender politics is all over the place, LGBT pride all over the place. Things that are contrary to Scripture made normal. And, and if there's... One person who talks about this and sums it up way better than I could, it's Paul. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, in verses 20 and following. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. error. 
Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what they ought, or they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Sound a little bit familiar. When we start to remove God from the picture, we can't be surprised when the world starts to embrace sin and gets filled with sin. But that leads us to our next points. When we remove God, we begin to blend in with the world. We see God removed and sin saturates the culture. It's saturated in Shechem, and it does the same thing today. Too often, when we start to remove God out of the picture, we start to blend in with the world. We begin to blend in with the world. And Dinah was in a place that she shouldn't have been, intermingling with the Canaanites. And this is no excuse, hear me, this is no excuse for what has happened. It's a horrible thing that took place. But she should have never been where she was. And look at, J look at Jacob. Jacob was thinking about himself. He wanted peace because he was afraid of what was going to happen to him. And so he tried hard to avoid offending, tried hard to avoid making the Canaanites mad. Remember, they were told earlier they shouldn't intermingle when Jacob was looking for a wife. Look what it says later in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Man, Jacob is told, the family's told, do not intermingle with these Canaanites because you will eventually be taught to follow all the detestable things that they do. Don't intermingle with them. Don't become uh, part of their culture. And that's what they were proposing. Come and be a part of what we're doing. Intermingle with us. Kind of reminds me of the story of Lot. Became so comfortable with where he was in his position as gatekeeper. He became so comfortable with what was happening that as he was trying to keep evil from coming into the city, he turned a blind eye to the evil that was already in the city. And I think what we need to remember is we need to remember what Scripture tells us. John says this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Think about what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And we need to remember something. We are not of this world. We are not of this world. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. We do not belong to this world. And so what do we need to do? We need to live by the word of God. We need to stand for the word of God. We need to live by what it says. We need to do what it says. And guess what? It's going to make people mad. It is. When you do what the word says, it will make people mad. They will insult you. They will call you names. They will mock you. They will say that you're not approving. They will say all of these things about you. But the question I would ask is if we live our lives worrying about people um, or what people will say or what people will do if we speak the truth, how will we ever share the truth? We can't live in fear of what people will say or what people will think. We must live out the truth of God's word. And you may be here thinking, well, don't we have to, don't we have to be in the world with the world, you know, accepting, loving people as they are in their sin because, you know, that's how we, that's how we get people to, to believe, right? Like we have to live life with them. They are in the, created in the image of God. Absolutely, we do have to love people. Absolutely, we do have to love our neighbors as ourselves. We do absolutely need to love the people around us. And you may work at a place where you're surrounded by people who believe differently than you, who believe in things that are contrary to the word of God. Guess what? You do love them. You do have to love them. But man, we are not called to be like them. We are not called to take part in the things that they participate in. I love how Caleb Kaltenbach says it in his book, Messy Grace. He says, we can be accepting but not approving. We can be loving without applauding. And we can be compassionate without commending. And so maybe you have coworkers around you or family members around you who do not agree with what the word says. Absolutely love them. We're called to love. We're not, a called, to, we're not called to approve sin. We're not called to applaud sin. We're not called to commend sin. And I get it. It's easy sometimes to get caught up in the things of this world. And I worked in retail for such a long time, and I remember so many times finding myself getting caught up in the jokes of the people around me, things that if I, as I look back at it, I think, man, I could have been so different in those moments. I could have been telling people what I believe. I could have been living out my life for him, but yet so often I got caught up in the same jokes. I got caught up in the same discussions, and I missed so many opportunities. And we must not become so much like the world that we blend in with it and do, and so we become just like it. And there's one more thing I think we can take from this. When we remove God, violence increases. When we remove God out of the picture, violence seems to increase. You see, in their minds, Simeon and Levi thought that what they were doing was distributing judgment, and they thought that it was right and it was just. And here's the problem. What they did was not just. You see, there is a line between standing for what is right and just and doing what is right and just. There is a line between defending yourself and protecting your family and seeking bloody revenge. 
a matter of fact, these words that are come later in the blessing that Jacob will give to his son Simeon and Levi. In Genesis 49, 5-7, this is what it says. It says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. They would pay for this later on. And the truth is that when we take God out of the equation, we see things escalate. And what causes this? What causes this escalation? What causes these problems to arise? Well, I think James gives us a pretty good detail on, or details on how this happens. James 4, 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And anger, jealousy, bitterness, it turns to hate, and hate turns to violence so quickly, and it feels like we can turn on a TV, open social media, open a web browser, and as soon as we open it, the very first thing is breaking news, shooter, shooter. People gunned down. Things have taken place. So often it stems from one of these things. And sadly, so many people throughout history who have been part of events like this wear the name Christian. And so the question I think a lot of people ask, we ask it often, how do we respond to things like this when things take place like this around us? What should our response be when somebody has wronged us, when somebody has done something just around us? What should we do? How do we handle it? I like what Paul says in Romans 12, 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 1 Peter 3.9, it says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And it is not up to us to play judge, jury, and executioner. But when we remove God out of the picture, these things happen. But I don't want to end on a dreary note. No, I want us to end with some hope. You see, God, his name is not mentioned in this passage, but guess what? He oversees all of it. He sees what's happening. He knows what's taken place. And guess what? He still takes the people involved in Jacob and his family and uses them. Jacob, it doesn't change Jacob's favor with God. It, God doesn't say, you know what, Jacob, I'm done with you. He still takes them and uses them. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, last week we talked about the fact that God can use 
broken people like us. He can take broken people like us and he can use us to do things for his kingdom. But here's the other thing. More than that, God can enter into a mess. God can enter into something that is so messy, something that is so tragic, and God can still save messy people like you and me. We are messy, broken people, and God can still save messy, broken people. Through the blood shed on the cross, he did save messy people like us. And if there's an example of what God can do in the the worst of us and the messy of us, I think of Paul each and every time. These are Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 13 through 17. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I am the worst of the worst. I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of the worst. I do not deserve any of this, but yet through his grace... Man, he's taken somebody like me, so broken, so messed up, and he has given me salvation. How great is it that God can take our mess, God can take the messiness of Scripture, God can take the messiness in our world today, and he can take that and he can save us in this mess. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to him, and you're thinking, my mess is just too messy. It's too messy for God's grace to come in and and just change my life. There's there's no way. And God deals with messy. God can save us in the messy because of what his son has done for us. And so if you've never given your life to him, there's no better time than now. Or maybe you're here and you've given your life to him, but like we do sometimes, we start to take God out of the picture of our life. We start to say, I, I don't need God here. I don't need God here. I can, I can handle this part on my own. I don't need God here. I can handle this part on my own. And we start to wonder why we blend in with the people around us. And maybe you're here this morning and you've kind of started taking God out of the picture. Maybe this morning what you need to do is put him back in. Right where you're sitting, you can just give your, you know, give that all to God. Pray to God this morning. If you need to pray, I'd love to pray with you. And we cannot let God be removed out of the picture. Because when God is removed, sin just saturates everything. And we start to blend in and things occur. But what we need to do is we need to be those who stand for the word, stand for the truth, tell people the truth of the gospel, preach the gospel, share the gospel in the way we live our lives. We cannot take God out of the picture must show God in the way we act and the way we live and the things we say and we do. 
And if you've never made that decision, I pray that you would do so this morning as we stand and we sing. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Uh, a quick announcement before we dismissed. I know there's a lot of things up, coming up on our calendar, whether it's camp for kids and the teens and stuff like that. Uh, we're looking forward to summer. It's always a great time, filled with a lot of fun. Um, if you have questions about camp, see Nora or I. And announcement here for ladies getting together for a lunch on Saturday, May 6th. So that's not this Saturday. That is the next Saturday. If you have questions... CK and yeah otherwise uh thankful for this Sunday
And uh, as all usual, the offering plates are towards the back, and we super appreciate all your gifts, especially stuff like the Easter offering, and that will, we'll, we pray over that every week. So I'm going to say a word of prayer, and we'll do our last song. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the blessings you've given us, Lord, and I ask that as we give back to your church this morning, Lord, that your gift is a blessing to those who want to know you, who want to find life in you, Lord, and I pray as people desire to grow closer to you, Lord, that Lord, uh, nothing gets in their way, Lord. They don't let the sins of this world stop them. They don't let that put separation between them and you. Lord, help us all to cling to you. Lord, thank you so much for your son, and in his holy name I pray. Please stand with us as we sing one last song, Clean. Precious blood has left me Have a great week.